Our text for today is from Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. This is the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, I said that wrong. Oh, well. Different churches, different places. All right, let's pray. (laughs) Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for this time to gather together in your name. Thank you for this church. I pray, Lord, that as we open this passage before us, that we would take to heart what you have to say, that we would listen carefully, that we would consider what applies to us here, that we might be a faithful people, that we might be a focused people, that we might be a people diligent to do your things, to look forward to the kingdom that is to come and to be a faithful witness in this time. Bless us, Lord, as we we study. I pray for your help as I preach your word, and I pray, Lord, that you would feed your people today. It's the praise and glory of you and of your Son and the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As I was preparing for this sermon, I... I was reminded of the time when I was in the Navy. I was a hospital corpsman in the Navy Reserves. Um, boot camp is one of those unique experiences of life. Is there anybody else service experience? Okay, got a couple there. Okay, so you remember the painful memories. Uh, a lot of boot camp is spent in seemingly meaningless duties and tasks. Lots of marching, lots of physical training, lots of inspections, and the emphasis along the way, the whole way, is everything must be done and be done right. Uh, We had constant inspections of all sorts. The question is why? I mean, when you think about it, what does marching accomplish? I mean, we can see something of physical training is helpful, it's good to be strong, flexible, and that sort of thing, to be able to run and and that sort of stuff. But, But what does marching do? How does marching help you for the task at hand? And what do inspections do? You can't kill an enemy with a folded shirt. They don't care whether your bed's properly made or not, or whether you've dusted. But there's a, there's a method behind the madness of, of military training. Their goal is to make us into soldiers, to prepare us for the battlefield, to be ready for what we might face. What that takes is the ability to follow directions under any circumstances, including the most meaningless circumstances. To pay attention to details, to work together. They, they beat that into you. That's what makes you a soldier. That's what makes you a sailor. sailor. That's what helps you to be ready for any circumstance. So that as a corpsman, if I were to go into the battlefield and face fire, I would be able to take care of those in need and not lose heart and not run away or not know what to do. 
might be ready because I had been properly trained. And I think it's helpful for us to hear these messages from Jesus in the same way. Jesus is not simply rebuking for the sake of rebuking. He's not simply exposing people because they need to be taken down a notch. Or he is not simply venting. There is a purpose for these messages that is really the purpose of the whole book of Revelation, which is to prepare God's people for what lies ahead. The reason why we're told what's ahead is not to spend our time figuring out how it's going to happen, but to be ready, to be prepared, to know what to do when the time comes, to stand firm and not lose heart at those moments where we will be tested the most, to shine brightly in the darkest moments. In order to do that, we need to have focus. And so these, these messages I see as messages to churches that in one way or another have lost their focus. And Jesus is calling them back. Remember who you are. Remember what this is about. What you're called to. What lies ahead. What this is all for. And so as we, as we read these passages this morning, and this is, this is a tough one because this is, this is a sharp rebuke from Jesus. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. If you don't change, I will come like a thief in the night and take it away from you. He's not mincing words here. But this is the word of someone who is training his people to be ready. So let's look at this message. This is a message to a good church in a cool city. Sardis was a city with an impressive history with great resources, with a, a stout defense, at, at a time where that mattered. This is, this is not the times that we live in. I mean, it's, it's like Yakima, but without the walls. A great city, great resources, all that stuff. People all want to come to Yakima. People all want to come to Sardis. It's a great place, but, you know, those hordes need to protect against the marauding hordes. The history of it is fascinating. It had, been a capital of the, it had been the capital of the kingdom of Lydia about six or 700 years prior. It's an important kingdom in the middle of what we know of as Turkey today. After it had been captured by the Persians in around the 500s BC, it, it became the final outpost on the western end of the royal road of Persia that stretched all the way into the heart of the Persian Empire. So this was not just an important road for that sake, but it was what connected the Persian Empire to the Mediterranean Sea, to the Aegean Sea, to the, the Greeks, and beyond. They were the last stop on that road. So lots of trade ran through that road, and it continued to be an important trade road, even through the time that Jesus is speaking to this church now. And then after coming into the Roman Empire around the second century B.C., it was made a provincial capital, and that, with that came massive building projects. They built theaters and roads and aqueducts. It was a really well-equipped, well-built-out city. It's also an important religious city. Uh, there was a regional deity, Sibyl, but there was also the Temple of Artemis. There was even a, a tells you something of the standing of the city to have a temple that was devoted to the worship of the emperor as well. So very important economically, very important politically, very important spiritually, very important place. And as I said, it was also a place that was valuable for its resources. Gold was in the hills around Sardis, including what was a, a naturally occurring alloy of silver and gold that, that led to the first coining or minting of coins in the world began in Sardis. In fact, there's 
there's some interesting ties between Sardis and the myths of like King Midas, which are, I didn't follow through much, but, but rich resources in terms of gold, in terms of marble, and also in terms of purple dye, which was something that was very highly valued in those days. It was a rare color. It was a color of, of distinction, of wealth, and so very valuable. And they had plants in that area that, that provided that kind of dye. And then lastly, in terms of defense, Sardis was noteworthy for the fact that it was built around a, a tall, mountainous, flat-topped hill called Necropolis. Thousand foot high, fairly steep, almost sheer slopes to the side. Just a natural defense where all the important buildings of the city were built. It was almost impregnable in those days. You had to work hard to climb those and then get through 30 foot, 30 foot thick walls to get into the citadel and do any damage. So a great place, important place, a valuable place, a place of significance. And as we see in how Jesus speaks to these people, this is a great church. You have the reputation of being alive. And we don't have specifics, but I think it's not hard, I don't think it's hard for us to imagine what that means. This is a church that was healthy by all appearances. There's good preaching, good teaching, good relationships in between. There was good leadership it's a church that was growing in all the ways you can imagine a church to grow in terms of numbers, in terms of health, in terms of maturity. By all appearances, this is a living church. And a church, on top of all that, or because of that, had a good reputation in the community. They had a good name among Sardis. But they were dead. They were dead. The appearances notwithstanding, this is a church that was in deep trouble. What did, what did Jesus mean by this? Because clearly they were still alive, physically. How, in what way were they dead? And we find some clues in the passage here. Let's look through this passage again. In verse 2, he calls them to wake up and strengthen what remains. The only thing you need to strengthen is what had become weak. So there was a weakness there that had become. A little bit later on, he talks about their works being incomplete. So they had not finished. They had left off from what they had done. So they were dead in terms of weakness, they were dead in terms of incomplete works. And then a little bit later on, he refers to those who hadn't soiled their garments, which is usually, usually a reference to becoming like those around you, losing your distinctiveness, your integrity as a person of God, a becoming like the world, looking just like them. So they had become weak, they had left things incomplete, they had become like the world. And what that tells us is, like Ephesus and what we'll see in Laodicea, the church in Sardis had lost her focus. Somehow, she had gotten sidetracked from her calling as a church. Got sidetracked in terms of their devotion to the Lord, in terms of their works before the Lord and in the world, and in terms of their holiness. So that over time, the church had become just like the city. Did you happen to notice... There's no mention here of any suffering or persecution in Sardis. All the other churches, Jesus recognizes, you're under pressure, you're feeling the heat, you're in danger, Satan's seed is among you. Nothing here. Sardis has become indistinguishable, unremarkable, inoffensive to the people of Sardis. They were just like them. And... And this is, this is interesting because we see a couple of these different messages working this way. What he says to them parallels some of the historical elements of the city itself. 
The, city, the church in Sardis was in danger of suffering the same fate for the same reason. They had become proud. They had taken security. They had become complacent in their security, in their prosperity, and are in danger of being overturned just as Sardis was at least twice before. Sardis, for all its natural defenses, for all its careful preparations, was so confident that they could not be defeated, that they were defeated because they did not set watch. And the Persians and then the Greeks both overcame the city and destroyed the city by finding a place in the wall after climbing up the hill, finding a place in the wall to sneak through and exploit them because they weren't watching. They were asleep. They were not awake. The same thing was in danger for the church. So we look at this passage, seeing a church that is in similar situation to where we are. We also live in a time of great prosperity, in fact, prosperity that's just unimaginable in the course of human history, when you think about it. It doesn't really matter what, what social economic status you come to church with. You are wealthy and part of a prosperous nation, the likes of which have never been seen before. Even our poor are wealthy by historical standards. And that has an effect on us. We are secure in a way that is unimaginable. We don't have walls and hills, we have oceans that have for the last couple hundred years kept us almost impervious to outside attack. We dwell in safety and security that is unimaginable in the ancient times. We've been looking as a family at what's been going on in Ukraine, and one of the things that you need to know about the history of Russia itself is that there is a virtual pathway, a virtual highway from the eastern part of Asia all the way through into western Russia and into Europe that they could not stop when the Mongols and other hordes came through. They just, it's flat, it's easy travel. To get to America, you have to get over the oceans first. And that gives us a high degree of security that, that is just unusual, but significant. Significant for us. And therein lies a danger. To talk about prosperity, to talk about security as dangers is not to say that they are inherently bad. In fact, biblically speaking, we can see those as a good thing and even a blessing from the Lord. Prosperity is a blessing, isn't it? Often in scripture, Abraham was a wealthy man. Job's wealth was restored because of his righteousness before the Lord. <coughs> and security is something that God promises to his people as part of his covenant blessings. They're legitimate blessings. The question we have to answer here is how do these affect us? How do these things shape our thoughts, our desires? How are they able to trap us? Are we awake to those realities? Are we awake to those dangers? When you think about it, <coughs> there's at least a couple of key ways in which these, are, these trap us. One is that they come to us with the promise of an easier life. Have you found it hard to consider the life of Christianity, especially from the historical context? When you think of how much our historical forebears have suffered for the faith. How hard they've had to work. How much they've had to sacrifice. And it just does not resonate with where the time and place we live in now. 
A couple hundred years ago, people would walk miles, take hours to travel the distance to go to church. Hop in a car, drive twice as far in a quarter of the time, and not think twice of it. It's just gas after all. comes with the promise of an easier life. We don't have to work hard and we don't have to suffer. It is a mixed blessing of the time and place that we live in that suffering has diminished in all ways. Because of medicine, because of technology, we we are not a people that know what suffering really is or what hard work really is because we have so many things that do the work for us. Excuse me. And that's a danger. That's a danger to consider. The other, the other thing about prosperity and security is that there's this group ethos that join in, the water's fine. Everybody's doing it. What's wrong with you? Why wouldn't you? If this is a good thing, why wouldn't you take it? What's wrong with you? But these things can affect our focus. At least four different ways that I can think of. One, it affects our focus. <coughs> Excuse me. It can affect our focus in that it diminishes our dependence on God. Have you noticed that when we pray the Lord's Prayer? Have you ever felt this when we pray the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. And it sounds so trivial. When's the last time that has been a meaningful prayer on my lips? Because I've got two loaves in the cupboard. That will last me for days. I've got a full fridge. I've got a full freezer. I've got a full pantry. And if I ever run out, there's a store two minutes away that I have resources to buy. When have I prayed with the kind of meaningfulness of gratitude for what God's given me for this meal right now? It's not that I'm not thankful. I just don't think of it because I'm full. My house is full. The cupboards are full. That's not bad. I'm just asking the question. What does that do to us in terms of dependence on God? When, when we're short, when we don't have those things, do we turn to God or do we turn to our bank account? Do we turn to our God or do we turn to the store? There's so much that lies within our hands It's hard for us to feel meaningfully dependent on God on a daily basis, on an hourly basis. We have to wonder whether that's good. It can also make us dependent on these things, on this prosperity, on the security, in a way that makes us not want to be willing to give them up. When we hear these great stories of missionaries, I have a friend right now who's traveling in uh, South Pacific, visiting the places of one of my missionary heroes, John Patton, the missionary to the New Hebrides Islands and risked much uh, upon landing on the island to get established. Both his wife and his uh, son, newborn son, died because of illness after a six-month sea journey. That's how he started. You should be a missionary too, Pete. Do I want to? Do I want to give this up? And, and, and maybe not superficially, like, you know, enjoy the, the banalities of life, but, but I'm going to be leaving my mom. My mom needs me. Be leaving other extended family. Be leaving the Northwest, which I love. and be leaving a lot of things that I don't have to leave if I don't want to. Why would I? 
What if I give them up and there isn't something to take their place? These things can also distort our sense of time by turning our focus towards the here and the now and away from what is to come. Um, I've, I've asked the question rhetorically before here. It's interesting to me how little these days we, we think about the return of the Lord with any sort of hopeful anticipation, but more sort of a reality that we're going to have to face. I have so many things I want to happen before he comes. Yes, I want the Lord to come back, but I also want to get married. I also want to have a child. I also want to experience life. I want to see the world. It'd be great if he came, but after that, please. And if he comes, you know, I'll be, yay, he's here. I'm still single, great. But distorts our sense of time. It, it, makes us see, it makes us see the world as though this time matters more than the world that is to come, which is the complete opposite of what we find expressed in Hebrews 11. And it can also diminish our sense of the importance of time. To take it easy, to relax, to put off till tomorrow. There's no urgency anymore. There's no need for urgency. It's fine. Take it easy. Have you noticed that? In your own life, in your own heart, in your own thinking. The dangers that come with this prosperity and the security that we've been blessed with. There's also the danger of a good reputation. And like with prosperity and security, it's not a bad thing. In fact, we are exhorted, aren't we, to have a good reputation with those around us. It's one of the requirements of an elder. We should think about the cultivation of godly character in part so that we would have a good reputation before the Lord. That we'd be a good testimony, right, to the goodness of the Lord. That others would see our good lives and give thanks to God. But even that can become a trap when we begin to care too much about what people think. And a society that is both wealthy and safe and secure and important, we also want people to like us, especially the important people. That, that adds to us, that makes us feel important. We don't want people to reject us. In some cases, we'll do anything, we'll do anything to keep that reputation, to keep them seeing us in that light, to see us favorably, won't we? And that's not just as individuals, but we see it also as churches. And it's, I mean, there's so many examples of churches that have gone this route. And it's just, it's heartbreaking to think of how, how badly some churches are willing to try and get those around them to like them to pander to the world, to, to diminish their distinctiveness. I'd rather spend less time talking about them and consider whether or not we as a church are willing to do that ourselves. Will we stand firm? God has blessed us with a great building, a great location, a great school. Where is the temptation for us to get those around us to like us, to keep coming to our schools, to keep coming to our church? Will we compromise? Will we sacrifice for a good reputation? The last danger, I think, is the most dangerous of all, in part because I don't think we believe it exists, at least not for us, and that's the danger of blindness. You have a good reputation, you have a good name, but you are blind. 
and they did not see it. They did not see what they are. They saw something different. The Bible is full of exhortations to be awake, to be watchful, to guard against self-deception. But self-deception is itself a problem because those who are self-deceived don't think they can be deceived, which means they likely are. That's a convoluted sentence, but I hope it made sense. The very characteristic of self-deception is you don't see that you're deceived. We just don't see it. More importantly, we often have a hard time believing it when others tell us. We don't trust them. We have all sorts of defenses. They don't get it. They don't know me. They're just out to get me. What about their blindness? That's the thing about blindness is that it's easy to see it in others, but not in ourselves. And this is something that we all struggle with. We all are capable of this. We all could be salient along, believing that we are all right, that we are doing what God calls us to, that we are being faithful and be unwilling to see those areas that we need to shore up. To consider where we've drifted, consider where we have lost focus, where we have compromised. Are we alert to that danger? So how do we avoid falling into these traps? From the scripture, three things. How do, how do we regain our focus? First, Jesus calls us to wake up. Wake up, open our eyes, become aware of the significance of this present moment. This moment that we live in is an important moment. It's an important moment in God's purposes. It's an important moment in history. Although it might not be as significant as other moments in history, it is still important. This church, you, we as Christians, are important and significant for this moment in all sorts of ways, which is not, a, which does not mean that we need to be heroic, but we do need to be faithful. This is the moment of faithfulness. This is the moment for parents to be faithful. This is the moment for us as workers to be faithful, as neighbors to be faithful, as husbands and wives to be faithful, as Christians to be a faithful witness, to know the Lord, to love the Lord, to speak of the Lord. These moments matter. These are significant. This is not the time to take a day off. Not a time to take it easy, to fall asleep. It's time for us to wake up and see these things that threaten to tempt us or distract us or to steer our focus away. Are we alert to that? Oftentimes we, 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 we spend our energy and time on what is permissible for Christians to do or not do. And that's an important discussion to have. And we ought to have that. But we don't often add into that, into that conversation what, about what is morally okay for us to do as Christians, but whether or not it is good for us in maintaining our focus on who we are and what we're called to. There are lots of things we can do that distract us, but are otherwise good. There are lots of things that we can do that, that, that are okay, that, that might even be beneficial, but distract us, that cause us to lose our focus. We need to think again in terms of Hebrews 12 where, where he talks about stripping everything away that entangles us so easily. We are not made to be multitaskers. We need to be focused workers, focused servants, focused soldiers. 
which means we need to cut things out, not allow things to linger if they, if they distract us, if they, they cause us to lose our focus. And then we need to wake up to our own weakness. Again, my tendency, and I, I think the tendency of most of us, is so easy to focus on others' weaknesses and not acknowledge our own. But that's why we confess our sins here. To be reminded ourselves that I, among others, am weak. I, among others, need forgiveness. I, among others, have lost my focus, have lost my way, have done things that displease the Lord, and I need to confess those before the Lord. I need to own my own weakness before the Lord so that I might receive the grace of God. Know his forgiveness, know his love. It's because of that that I can confess those things freely rather than fighting to maintain my dignity. But that's hard. It's hard sometimes to see our own weakness. More often than not, we don't want to because there's so much to lose if we confess who we are. That's why we need to come back, come back to the word, which is the next thing that Jesus calls them to. Come back. Remember, the word is what helps us to see rightly and to properly refocus. It does so by reminding us about the things that are important. Reminds us about God. And not just in terms of details and trivia, but in terms of who God is. What he's like. I preached this last Sunday of Psalm 46. I love the Psalms especially because whereas, whereas the New Testament has, has the technicality and the intricacy of like a jazz piece, the Old Testament, particularly the Psalms, just rumbles and roars and trumpets like a symphony orchestra. These big drums, these big brass notes, these huge, this is the Lord. The Lord speaks and the trees shatter. We need to hear that voice again. That's what helps us to refocus. That God is not just an element in our otherwise busy and complicated life. He is God and there is no other. He is our God. He is the creator. He is the Lord. He is our savior. He is our king. Coming back to the word reminds us of those things. Reminds us of what he's done and what he is doing and what he will do. This grand plan that we are part of. And it reminds us of what he expects from us as his people. Both as individuals and also as the church. Reminds us of what it means to live by faith. That's hard. It's hard to live by faith. That's why we need focus. Because focus helps us to, to lock, our, lock our hopes, lock our Assurance on what God has promised beyond what we see, in spite of what we see. A lack of focus will not enable us to live by faith. Because faith is hard. It's simple, but it's hard. Because it contradicts all that we see. And so we need to come back to the Word. The Word also reminds us that, that Christianity is much more, and we've heard this in, in some of the other messages through this section, is much more than just correct beliefs. It's the summons to know God himself. Our, our lives here are not just simply to know about God, but like Paul, to pursue, to push on to know him, to know every part of it and know what he's like here and now. He is our joy. He is our hope. He is everything. He is our life. Paul says to the Colossians, 
If we only get a taste of that, we will be willing to strip away the things that keep us from him. So we need to come back to the word. And then lastly, Jesus calls the people of Sardis and calls us to repent. We need to repent of our own drift, our own turning away. We need to repent of those things which cause us to lose focus. And not, not meaning just saying I'm sorry, but acknowledging them for what they are. They, they are wrong. They are bad. We, we are entertaining things that turn us away from the Lord who bought our very lives with the life of his own son. That's wrong. We've lost focus and we need to repent of that. And, and in repenting, it's not just acknowledging what was wrong, but coming back to what is right. Coming back to the one whose help is promised here to help us to overcome so that he would profess our name before the Lord, so that we would find our names in the book of life, so that we will end well, which is the whole point of why he's speaking to us in the first place through his word. So St. Andrews, is our focus clear? Do we know who we are? Do we know who God is? Do we remember what we've been called to? Or have we lost focus? Now is the time to come back. Now is the time to recover. Now, now is the time to return to the God who's called us, who's coming again. Let's pray. Lord, search our hearts. Know our ways. See if there's anything in us that steers us away from you. And turn us back Restore our hearts, restore our minds, restore our focus. Help us to see rightly again, Lord. Lord, we thank you for these, these opportunities to look in the mirror, to hear your voice, and to see ourselves correctly. Now, Lord, we ask that you would help us to, to come back and to walk faithfully, to be prepared for what comes, so that we might stand, that we might be found faithful that we would shine as lights, that we would go out with boldness, unafraid, because we know who we are, we know what we are called to do, and we know how this will end. So give us that hope, give us that focus again, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.